What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome back to the peripheral. Real quick, Philadelphia, Independence Beer Garden, 24th, 25th, after 6 or 7 o'clock. I'll be there. And Toronto, August 1st, at the Monarch Tavern, 6 p.m. I'll be with the Minds of Madness. Come hang out. I've been very hesitant to release this episode because I'm not sure how it will be received. I released it for my patrons on Patreon first to get their feedback, and it was well-received, which was awesome. I'd like to thank Kaylee, Brittany, Jen, Matthew, Michelle, Emma, Reverend Joe, Jennifer, Anna, Kat, Sarah, Jenny, Michael, and Kathy, and all my other patrons for all of your donations and continuous support. Tonight is something that won't be easy, although I think it's a very important topic with the rise of school shootings and school violence. Much like the last episode, this topic will require a great amount of understanding and empathy. I would argue that it is not natural for people to wish harm upon others, although sometimes the internet makes me cringe and question that. But tonight's episode, I interview a guest who describes wanting to do harm to her fellow students. This is not going to be an easy episode. Uh, I also will say that we do laugh incredulously and try to make some jokes. And if you don't understand why, it's really being taken aback by some of the ridiculousness of the things that are said or thought of. It is not in a malicious way, but at some point, if you can't laugh, then you're probably going to cry. Today's episode is going to be something that I feel needs to be heard by every single student in high school, college, middle school, and it took a lot of courage for my guest to come out and say what she says today. So let's just get on with the show. Mm. (laughs) My name is Jane. Jane. (laughs) All right. Like Jane Doe. Yeah. And this happened while I was in high school. I absolutely don't mean to say that I have the same diagnosis or anything like that of the Parkland shooter, but I do have a little bit of insight about what happens when you are a threat to a school. My current diagnosis, and you are probably a little bit familiar with this because of the last OCD episode, but I have pure O harm OCD with psychotic features which is kind of like normal OCD, but instead of, you know, like thoughts about germs and stuff, I have thoughts about killing people. 
this whole thing with the Parkland shooter, I feel when I when I hear these stories about those guys, I'm like, oh no. Not that I feel empathy for them, but like I've been in that position. And so I'm like, oh, I know how someone ends up in that position. I should probably start a little bit at the beginning, though. What grade were you in when you started figuring out there was a problem? When I first started figuring out that I was different than other people and I realized, oh, other people don't think all of these things, I was actually 13. I don't know exactly how I came to that realization that oh, other people don't think about killing people all the time. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, this this isn't normal. Why Why is this happening? And then I actually started to try and find, like, I, I started Googling stuff, but I absolutely refused to go to my parents at all. I was like, no, because then they'll send me to jail or, like... <laughs> You know, they'll they'll hate me and they'll just, like, send me to a mental institute. And so I absolutely refused to tell my parents. And those are valid and logical fears of telling somebody about these ideas, these, these thoughts you're having. But I don't know if a 13-year-old is capable of dealing with that, but go on. I, I did start having these thoughts about, you know, being violent when I was very, very, very young. So it's not like, you know, it was a reaction to, oh, something, you know? Because by all means, I had a very, very good childhood. I was upper middle class. Neither of my parents were abusive or anything like that. I had three siblings. All of them do not have this issue. When I was a little, little kid, four, five, six, I would just hit people randomly. And my parents couldn't ever really figure out, okay, why Why is this? It's not like you're mad in this situation. It's not like someone stole your toy. I would just go up to random kids and just start to attack them. The earliest I remember kind of my thought process behind that was first grade. And I remember, you know, kind of being on the, in a lot of situations, but being on the playground and thinking, this kid isn't doing something correctly, so I need to correct them by hitting them. That was one of the thought processes that got me to hit people, or someone would just catch my eye, and I would say, kind of hear a little thought in my head that I should hit that person. And then, of course, in first grade, you have absolutely no inhibition of filtering thoughts. So I would go up and I would just hit random kids on the playground for no reason. My parents asked me, why did you hit them? And I would just say, I don't know. Yeah, because you I don't, don't know why I hit them. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. And, and it's it's like any time any kid does anything wrong, they're like, why'd you do that? You're like, I don't I don't know. I, I just did it. I don't, yeah, <laughs> I just did. Um, I, I still feel bad to this day. I, I pulled a kid's chair out when he was going to sit down. <laughs> I have no idea. I didn't I didn't know him. I didn't have anything against him. I just saw him going yeah. to sit down. My foot was there and I'm like, this is perfect. And I did it and he fell on his butt and he started crying and I felt horrible. Immediately I felt horrible. But 
Did you feel bad? Well, that <laughs> did you feel bad after you had hit them? <laughs> I don't know if I felt bad, more confused. Mm-hmm. You know, almost as if it wasn't the reaction or like the consequences that I was expecting. Mm-hmm. You know, not that I had thought ahead long enough to be like, oh, these are going to be the consequences of my action, but it didn't happen that how I was expecting it to play out. Because in my mind, I was like, oh, you are building the blocks the wrong way. So if I hit you, you are going to build the blocks the blocks the right way. And what actually happened was they started crying and ran to the teacher. And I was like, how on earth would, would this play out this way? It, it didn't make any sense. So I, I did get a little bit more control of myself in probably second or third grade, when you kind of start to filter those thoughts where you're like, oh, if I have a thought that occurs in my brain, I don't have to listen to it. I can have a little bit more control over what actually occurs. Keep going, but have you told your parents anything yet by the third and fourth grade? No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I mean, because I didn't, I didn't myself exactly realize that this was strange because I had no context for it. I just figured, oh, everyone else sometimes feels the urge to punch other people in the face. I didn't think I was that strange. So there were other things that were happening when I was a little kid to kind of make you pause and go, hmm, that's not exactly normal. At least in this, in this instance, I didn't, I didn't think much of it. The other things that were kind of happening was I was having really paranoid thoughts about people being able to read my mind through the back of my head. So like when I would go to church as a kid, I would compulsively, this is where the OCD part comes in, I would compulsively touch the back of my head to like make sure that no one could be seeing what I was thinking through the back of my thoughts. You were kind of blocking I mean, them. through the back of my head, yeah. you know? You, you were sort of blocking their thoughts from, or their their eyes from reading you or something. Exactly. So I would touch the back of my head like every 30 seconds. Or, you know, I would, for a long time as a kid, I would stand against walls or in corners, you know? I didn't like anyone to be behind me. Yeah, there were just a lot of things like that. I mean... As like an eight-year-old, I would sit on my bed and stare down the hallway for like hours and hours and hours at night, you know, thinking someone's going to come around the corner and attack me the next second, the next second, the next second, the next second. And I would stay awake the entire night until the sun came up. My mom couldn't figure out why I was like perpetually exhausted. (laughs) And I guess I never explained to her oh, no, I didn't, I haven't slept in, like, weeks. Things like that, that I never explained to my parents. And so, you know, OCD being an anxiety disorder, I was very, very high-strung. I was very, very worried. I was actually, like, suicidal by the time I was eight years old, which I didn't tell anyone about either. I remember writing in my journal, and I still have this journal entry about, like, maybe I would just be better off dead and, like, 
I, I, you know, was having all of these thoughts going up into, you know, my teenage years. And then at 13, somehow through like, you know, just reading and the internet and all that stuff, I was like, oh, this is not normal. What is going on? So I, I of course, didn't want to tell my parents for, you know, the reasons that you already talked about, but... <laughs> I started, you know, like Googling, like, is this normal? And every, every thing that I came up with was, you're a psychopath. I really can't be a psychopath, though. A psychopathy is basically the opposite of anxiety. Because you have your own emotions in yourself, but you're not empathetic. So having an anxiety disorder and having, like, panic attacks and things, which I had started to have at 13... Really, there was no way that I could have been a psychopath. And I'm not a psychopath, but, you know, I didn't know that at the time. While I was shopping around for things on the Internet, my parents had begun to notice not, you know, anything sinister, but just that I was very, very anxious. So my mom said to me one day, hey, you know, we've noticed that you're a little bit anxious how about we go up and we, we talk to someone at the hospital? And I was like, oh, yes, only for the range of anxiety. Absolutely. That's the only reason that I want to talk to someone. So it kind of just fell into my lap that I got to talk to someone. So I had refused to talk to my parents at this point. But I was very, very reasonably assured with the whole doctor-patient confidentiality thing. Okay. So when we got to this hospital, it was only a nurse practitioner that we were talking to. My parents were only thinking, oh, we're just here for some mild anxiety. We talked with my parents first in the room, and then they left. And the second they left, I was like, okay, listen, lady. I've been having all these thoughts about killing other people. What's up with that? I could tell she was just absolutely overwhelmed. She was like, uh, this is above my pay grade. <laughs> oh, um, so I just like told her not everything, but just some of the thoughts that I was having. And she, she asked me, she was like, do you have any plans to kill anyone now? And I said, no, because it's not a plan for me. It was impulse. So I said no. And I would continue to say no to that question when it came up later. And so she had no reason to, you know, call the police because you only do that if you have an intimate threat. Yeah, an intimate threat to a specific person or the individual. I went out and she brings my parents back in and she doesn't tell them all what I said because, you know, Dr. Crazy's confidentiality, she's not allowed to, even though she probably just could have broken the rules, but she didn't. Mm-hmm. But she did tell them. They said, Jane is psychotic. And my parents were like, we really don't think so because we've never noticed anything like that, you know? Which, as far as my parents never noticing anything when I was a kid, I was a very good liar. And I could cover up a lot of stuff. It's not their fault that they didn't know. Especially signs of depression and anxiety in kids are actually a little bit different than signs of depression and anxiety in adults. You know, it usually manifests as anger or frustration instead of outright 
apathy or sadness or anything like that, which I was, you know, very angry as a kid. But it's not their fault that they didn't know. So they they weren't satisfied with that. And they took me to another doctor who I didn't tell all of this stuff to. I just talked about, like, anxiety stuff in general. So at this point, I was 14 or 15. And my violent thoughts towards people were becoming increasingly more complex. You know, instead of just hitting them once, this scenario would build in my brain of, okay, you're going to grab this girl by the hair, and then you're going to smash her face into the desk, and then you're going to grab her and drag her off of the desk, and then you're going to choke her to death. It would become a little bit longer of a scenario. And when these things would happen, I would kind of go into a daze and be very, very into that scenario. And it would cause me a lot of stress in the moment or after the moment, because I would kind of come out of it and say, I shouldn't be thinking those things. Serial killers think those things. <laughs> you know, I wasn't completely off the reservation like, this is a wonderful idea. I should follow all of these ideas. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I, I, on some level, which is why, you know, I'm in the middle of the psychotic scale, realized this is not a normal thing to think. I shouldn't be thinking that because that's mean, you know? I actually like this person sitting next to me. Why would I do that to her? It it kind of increased as I go older into like 15, 16, and it would be like almost constant, you know, unless I was distracted by something else. Walking down the hallway, it'd be like, kill that person, kill that person, kill that person, kill that person. You know, and it, it just got steadily worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I started driving, it was a big issue for me to stay going straight because I would see someone walking down the sidewalk and I would think, you should careen into that person and kill them. You should just slightly move your hand and go over the lane and go head on into someone else, which is a slightly suicidal thought, but also a homicidal thought, which from a chemical standpoint aren't actually that different in the brain. You know, I had still been going to therapy, and this is where medication came into into play. I started on antidepressants when I was, I think I must have been 14 or 15. We tried Prozac, which I kind of think is the heart of why we have such an increase in shooters nowadays, is because you have a kid like me who is having all of these thoughts and then you put them on a pill that lowers inhibition you know it's like being drunk and so I would do things that normally my inhibition would say no wait stop when you look at psychiatric medications I think the average psychiatric patient has to go through five medications before they get to one that works for them which is horrible for any kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. But those previous four, who knows what happens in the meantime. When you look at how many of these mass shooters 
were on antidepressants, it becomes even more clear. One of the Columbine kids was on antidepressants. Mm -hmm. The Aurora Theater kid was on antidepressants. Uh, The Parkland shooter was on antidepressants. The Florida hotel shooter was on antidepressants. And the Florida church shooter was on antidepressants. Uh, the San Bernardino people were on antidepressants. It just it makes you think that there's a big correlation between antidepressants and or, or people e- who do crazy things. Yeah. Or even if they're not causing the shooting, well, they're sure not helping either. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, if we're not saying that they're the cause, they obviously didn't do their job to stop it. The first medication that I ever went on, I was 14 or 15, I'm unclear on that, but it was Prozac. You know, I had had a lot of homicidal thoughts, I'd had a lot of suicidal thoughts, but I had, you know, had that bit of reservation that would stop me from acting on it. And I had a horrible reaction to Prozac. Within, I think it was two days, I felt really hazy and just kind of in this hyper-aware dissociative state of like, I should go to the top of the building and jump off, you know, kind of very suicidal state. And at some point in this thinking, I realized this is the medication because I didn't feel like this last week. You know, it was that abrupt of a change. So I called my parents and I told them and they called the doctor and the doctor said, oh, discontinue it immediately. You know, and then I was on like my parents wouldn't let me go anywhere alone for 72 hours to their credit because they're they're good parents and they love me and in that case my lowered inhibition was saying commit suicide but if my lowered inhibition if I had had a homicidal thought in that time I would have been much closer to doing it on Prozac than I had ever been without medication So I, I, you know, cycled through medications, trying to find what works, what doesn't work. You know, my thoughts were just getting worse. And at this point, I hadn't told my parents or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But when I was 16, I told my therapist. And she was a lovely lady, but, you know, she didn't know all that she was talking about. But she tried to help anyway. You know, we would talk about, oh, you know, these thoughts are just... And by then, I had been successfully diagnosed with OCD. And, you know, she would say, oh, this is just another OCD thought, which in some ways it absolutely is. But its grounding in reality was less stable than your average OCD thought. But we didn't get into that at that time. So she would just say, oh, this is a normal OCD thought. You don't have to listen to it. You know, your compulsion to alleviate the stress is this. So, you know, let's work on coping mechanisms and things like that. Which was useful, but didn't really completely solve the issue. And she eventually convinced me to tell my parents. And I didn't want to tell my mom. So I actually said okay, you tell my mom, I'm going to go outside and take a walk. I went outside and she told my mom and I come back in and my mom is just like sobbing. And I'm like, oh no, why? This isn't supposed to be happening in this scenario. I think absolutely to my parents' credit that I never did do anything 
they went absolute research crazy. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, so she had lots of time. She read so many books about OCD and parenting a teenager books and things like that. She just, she went on a, a giant research binge. And my parents were very, very involved. You know, I don't think they exactly understood where it was coming from or exactly what the best approach was, but they were at least trying, which is another factor that made my situation turn out to be a a good one and not like the Parkland kid. Their early intervention things prevented that from happening. And one of those things was my parents being so involved in my mental health which uh, a lot of parents can't do. The Parkland kid was an orphan and he couldn't, he didn't have that support. So, you know, my thoughts were becoming increasingly more elaborate and Prozac. It made me less anxious about the thoughts that I was having. I was way more apathetic to, oh, I'm thinking about this, all right which obviously did not help in my case. I started, you know, making plans. So one thought that I had, there was, there was a Christmas tree. This must have been sophomore year. But there was a Christmas tree in the entryway of my school that had little presents under it. Mm-hmm. And I got the idea, I should build a bomb and then wrap it like a present, like a time bomb, and then put it under the tree to go off at a certain time, like during lunch or something. Maybe it was because it was disconnected. It wasn't me actually putting my hands on someone. This didn't seem quite as distressing to me as the other thoughts. So I actually started researching, okay, uh, time bomb mechanisms and uh, certain chemicals, and I could buy fireworks and all of this stuff. But I knew that it wasn't something that I should be researching. So I would like go to the library and look these things up on their computers. Or like if I checked out a book that had diagrams about time bombs, I would make sure that I checked it out with like five other books so that it was, you know, a little bit more inconspicuous kind of thing. So I was definitely covering my tracks, which... Obviously, on some level, I knew that I shouldn't be doing that because I was trying to cover it up. So if I had actually successfully pulled off that bomb plan in my head, I think there's no way that a jury would have said, this is not 100% premeditated, which is probably true, but (laughs) it doesn't look at the full picture. If I had had a gun... I probably would have gone with the easier plan of just going and shooting a bunch of people. It just makes it so much easier to have a a high body count with not a lot of hassle. It's like a QVC ad for like killing people. Like there was a kid at a neighboring high school who, this wasn't while I was in high school, this was like last year, who wanted to go shoot up the school, but he couldn't find a gun. So he just brought a knife. And he did stab a couple kids before they took him down, but no one died. It would have been so much easier if he had had a gun. 
but my parents were very no guns. Are you able to buy a gun if you wanted one? No, I'm not able to buy a gun. Okay. And the only reason that I'm not able to buy a gun is because later, when I was 19 or 20, I actually got institutionalized for a short while. But the only thing in certain states that will stop you from having like, that, that will give you like a mental health restriction on buying a gun is being hospitalized, which I wasn't ever in high school hospitalized. And maybe if that Parkland kid had ever been hospitalized, which he really probably needed to be, he would have had, you know, his background check would have come up. You absolutely cannot have a gun. You shouldn't have one. And I'll, I, I completely, I'm not like mad that I can't have a gun. I shouldn't have a gun. I'm, no, I should not be able to have a gun because I have mental health problems. But at the time, I, I was still, I still would have been able to buy a gun. But I had, but because guns weren't part of my family culture, I had no idea how to go about that. So that wasn't really a option in my head. And without saying the state that I'm in, we don't have a lot of gun shows or things. I had no idea how to go about getting a gun. So, you know, I went to the next option, which was time bomb. I would go to Lowe's and I was very mechanically minded. I made my own copper coil generator from like scratch, which isn't time bomb related, but I was fully capable of, of doing this. So I, I did buy like some supplies, like, you know, I had an egg timer. I had some wiring and stuff, but I still didn't have the chemicals. And then, just like an out-of-the-blue thought, you shouldn't be doing this, you know, examining my egg timer and all of these things like that. And so, with my more level of apathy, huh, yeah, that's probably true. I probably shouldn't be doing this. Planning and all of this stuff. But then I, I eventually did have this little epiphany. If I had had a gun and had been able to carry out my plan without a month and a half to think about it, maybe I wouldn't have had that epiphany. That epiphany didn't come immediately by any means. So I thought, I shouldn't be doing this. So it was of my own volition that I was like, okay, I need, I need to stop, stop this plan. So I just went back to school and I just abandoned my time bomb plan. You know, the Christmas tree plan did not work out, which is, is for the best, for sure. So eventually at this, at this point, I was beginning to think that was not a good plan. You should feel guilty about that. And it was kind of like this disconnect in my brain where because I was so dampened by the antidepressants, I didn't have that feeling of immediate guilt, but I still had that cognitive, like, you should feel guilty for that. I kind of worked myself into this frenzy over the next couple months where I was very, 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 very on edge at school. You know, I would just be like that creepy kid who would just stare at one student for like 20 minutes at a time, you know, imagining all the scenarios in which I could kill her or him or whatever. I started to do this, and this is where 
kind of the school's response came in. And not by them noticing anything. Uh, It was completely my doing. But, like, over the course of this 20 minutes of staring this kid down, I would kind of, you know, halfway through realize I shouldn't be thinking this. And then I would feel guilt and I would feel anxious and I would start to go into a panic attack. And I didn't want to have a panic attack in class. So I would excuse myself and kind of wander the hallways like a crazy person, sometimes muttering things to myself, sometimes walking back and forth and staring aimlessly at things. And I did that a couple times before I, I actually went to the office. And when I walked in, they could kind of tell I was having a panic attack. And they said, all right, just just come into the nurse's office. And they would just leave me in there by myself until I stopped having a panic attack. And then I would go back to class. (laughs) And I never, I actually never once saw the nurse at my high school. Because I think she was working for like five different high schools. And she was only at my high school one day a week. And it just never happened to be when I was there having a panic attack in the nurse's office. This is where I get into kind of the failure of the school counseling, school health system to do absolutely anything in the interest of someone's mental health. So a student is coming in and having a panic attack, multiple panic attacks, and just like sitting in the nurse's office. And I think... They did call my parents a couple times, but, you know, either my mom wouldn't answer and I would finish having a panic attack, or she would, and she would just pick me up and take me home. But, I mean, you would hope that there would be a higher level of interest from a school about mental health problems because that's what leads to these kind of violent things. So after a while of that... I, I eventually, I, I realized I am a danger, you know, to the kids around me. And when I looked at it from that point, I was like, oh, I need to be stopped. Let the school know about this, which was a hard decision to come to, that decision of telling my parents. You know, I thought, oh, they'll just, they'll call the police, they'll, you know, lock me up, they'll do something like that. But then I was like, well, for the benefit of the other students, maybe that's the best thing. I I was very good at compartmentalizing. And I did care about the other students because after I would have these little episodes and these thoughts, I would feel guilty. And I'm like, I know that girl. That girl's nice. Or I know that kid. He's in my math class. Why would I think about breaking his fingers? Uh, so did you have friends in high school? Yeah, I did have friends. Not a lot of friends. I had two friends mm-hmm. who I was very, very, very close with. But I, I didn't tell them any of this either. And we had been best friends since fifth grade. So I kind of had built-in friends at that point. And and here's an odd follow-up to that. Did you have these thoughts mm-hmm. about, did you have the thoughts about your friends or just students you didn't know as well? I, I didn't have them about my friends as much, but 
but I eventually did. And I think that was one of the things that pushed me to feel more guilty about it was mm-hmm. because I've known this girl. This girl has been my best friend for a long time, for like eight years. Why, why am I thinking about killing her? That's not nice. I, I had more of an emotional reaction to those ones, which was added to my resolve to, I need to do something about this. But as to whether or not the other students could tell that anything was wrong, absolutely not. I was very, very charismatic, charming, I guess you would say. I could very well mold to whatever kind of group I happened to find myself in that day in class or that day in the lunchroom or anything like that. Like if I was talking to a group of cheerleaders, I would kind of, and this was all like thought out. It wasn't just kind of a natural response. I thought, okay, lift the pitch of my voice a little bit and, you know, smack my tongue a little bit more and kind of match their colloquialisms. It was almost a game to me to like match other people's body language and vernacular and kind of see how far into a group I could integrate myself successfully. And I was very, very, very good at it. So none of the other students had any idea (laughs) that this was going on. No one ever suspected anything. That's a little different than a lot of the other school shooters that were a little bit on the outside or, you know, they might have had friends, but they were a little bit more antisocial or not really willing to integrate with other groups. They they were really, some of them were loners, some of them just average. Didn't oh, absolutely, which I think was another reason that I never did end up going through with something was I didn't have resentment for the other kids. So I had a, a mechanism in place to feel guilty whenever I would think about these things. But if I had been in a situation where I had been bullied or something like that, where I had a thought, I wouldn't have felt guilty about thinking about that. That thought about someone who I didn't like at all, who had been mean to me before. I think the fact that I was social kind of set up me feeling guilty and eventually me thinking I shouldn't do this because someone who was antisocial wouldn't have that barrier. They would have that thought and then think there is no reason for me not to do this because I don't like these kids. Yeah, that was, that was definitely something different in my psychology. Not to say that I was open with the other students. It was all a mask. This didn't extend past the classroom. I never hung out with any of these kids. So I would be very, very jovial and stuff during school, and none of it ever translated to hanging out with kids after school. And at this point, these two friends that I had, they were very, very academic. And so we just didn't have a lot of time to hang out. So unless I was hanging out with them, I was by myself after school. I wouldn't hang out with anyone. So in that sense, I was a loser. No, I'm sorry, not a loser, a loner, but I covered it up very well at school. I had social skills. 
my dad used to always say that I was a natural-born salesman and that I could sell anything to anyone. I had no problem talking to people. I had this resolve to go talk to the school about it. And I didn't talk this plan over with my parents. I was very reluctant to, like, explain any of my reasoning because, you know, they would question me, like, where do you think this is coming from? And I would say, I don't know. So one day when I was kind of, you know, having a little bit of a panic attack over wanting to, like, rip someone's eyeball out, I went down to the school counseling office. And we only had one psychological counselor, and his name was ironically Mr. Bates, which I always thought was hilarious because of Psycho. And he was, he was one of those counselors. He also worked for basically all of the schools in my town, and so he was only there a couple of days a week. But he happened to be there that day, and I, I asked to talk to him. I went into his, to his office, and I was like, hey, so I've been having a lot of bad thoughts. And he was like, bad thoughts how? And I was like, you know, bad thoughts about uh, hurting other kids. He was like, do you want to elaborate on that? And I was like, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I kind of explained a little bit to him about, you know, I'll be in class and I'll have these thoughts about the kid sitting next to me, like, that I should attack them. He was like, huh, that's very interesting. And, you know, we talked about it for a while, and then I left his office, and I never talked to him again. And there was never any follow-up, which so, was not what I was expecting at all. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're you, finally, you finally got up enough courage and, and everything to go tell somebody expecting a response, expecting to be removed from school, expecting this huge outcome and nothing. Yeah. Okay. Is this not a problem? You know, I, I, maybe this happens all the time. Maybe there are like 50 other kids mm -hmm. who are thinking this and this is just a regular date. Like I was so confused and no idea like, I was expecting at least, like, a follow-up or, like, a something. This, this, by this time, this was my junior year that I had told him, and nothing came of it. And so I just continued on my way with, you know, ruminating and obsessing over, you know, attacking other kids. And it eventually... You know, it wouldn't just be in person. It was, you know, in some sense premeditated. I would think about it when I was at home. I would think about it when I was going to sleep. So I would think about it anytime I saw a knife. I was like, I could take that knife and put it in my backpack and bring it to school. And then I could stab a kid. I, I thought, you know, there would be some kind of follow-up. But no, I never heard from him again. So good job, school system for protecting your students and or caring about their mental health. My parents could tell that I wasn't really getting any better. I was increasingly more suicidal. We were trying to, you know, change medications and it wasn't really working out. I had never cut myself before, but I had had the thought, of course, you know, there's a knife. I could stab someone else or I could cut myself. And then I would just brush it off and think, no, that, that's stupid. I shouldn't do that. 
on a particular two weeks after I changed medication, I had that thought and I had zero inhibition to stop myself. So I actually, I was in like a dissociative state and obsessing about the order of words and things like that, which is more of an OCD thing. And I like started carving words into my arm and my parents were like, oh no. What were the words? The order that you should list pronouns. Does it sound better to say him, he, her, she, or does it sound better to say he, her, he, him? You know, like that kind of thing. It made no sense, but I, I obsessed about words a lot. A word game that I would play in my head, like almost constantly to just kind of alleviate stress was when I was talking to someone, I would pick out, while, while also still listening to them, I wasn't ignoring them, while also listening to them, I would pick out a word that they had said, and then I would separate that word into vowel or consonant patterns. And like, if it was an even number of letters, that was better. If it was an odd number of letters, that was better. If it had like a vowel consonant vowel, and then a vowel consonant vowel, that was a reverse sandwich double. And the longer a word was, like if it was a 10-letter word and it had like three patterns in it, I would just kind of do that. So I, words were kind of one of my obsessive things. But I was, you know, obsessing over the, the, the order that you should list. And I came to the conclusion that you should list them he, him, she, her. And then I was like, I need to write this down. And so I was like, I should write it on my arm. And I just did, you know? Mm -hmm. um, not all of them. I only got to he, and then I kind of came out of it a little bit. Maybe it was the pain or like, and I was like, wait a second. This is stupid. I have paper. Um, <laughs> yeah, so my parents were like, uh, this is different because you've never done this before. So we went to the psychiatrist and he was like, yeah, well, it has been like two weeks on this new medication. My dad was like, okay, we're stopping that immediately, which good on him for taking the initiative. So I wasn't, I wasn't exactly getting better. And this is where also being upper middle class really helps is that in my state, it was very hard to find OCD counseling just because it wasn't anyone's specialty, you know? And so my parents actually decided, okay, the doctors here are not helping. We're gonna go somewhere else. The OCD Center of LA in California is one of the best OCD treatment centers in the entire world. So we flew there it was actually going to be a grad student who was like had an intern there. Like it was so hard to get into this place, but like she had a family emergency or something. And so I actually got with one of the, the head doctors. So at that point I, I got the help I needed. She was one of the most amazing doctors that I've ever been to. She did a very good job of being non-judgmental but also, you know, kind of framing these thoughts in a way that I could understand. She was like, oh, you're I'm spacing on the word. She's like, oh, the OCD, the amygdala is overreactive, you know, so that's kind of 
causing that, but also your prefrontal cortex is latching on to thoughts in in a way that it shouldn't be. And, you know, you can look at brain scans of different people with OCD versus not OCD, and there's like a visible difference in all of these things. And she just explained everything in a way that kind of made me think, oh, this is something that I can deal with. I'm not eventually going to murder someone on absolute conclusion. One of the other things that she had me do was she was like, no matter how intense these thoughts get, you don't actually have to follow them. She pulled out a knife in in the office and she gave it to me and she said, we're going to prove that you don't have to follow your thoughts. And so she sat in front of me on the floor and I held a knife to her throat for, I think, seven or eight minutes straight, which is a common treatment of, a, of OCD is exposure therapy because it's kind of like you have a phobia. So if you're afraid of the water, you get closer and closer into the water and you eventually get in. Her treatment was you're afraid that you're going to kill me. So I'm going to make it extremely easy for you. And then you're going to eventually calm down and realize, oh, I didn't kill her. I don't have to kill people. And it worked. It was amazing. It's it's very counterintuitive, but it's a not in the context of harm OCD because that's a little bit harder to do an exposure for. But it's it is a very common OCD treatment is exposure therapy. I mean, we did work up to it. Like we put the knife on the couch and I sat next to it. And she was like, where is your stress level? And I was like, seven. And she was like, okay, well, wait until it goes down to like a three. And we sat there for like half an hour. She was like, where is it now? And then we would like move the knife closer and my anxiety would ratch up. And then it would go down. And then she would move the knife closer and my anxiety would go up. And we, this, this wasn't all in the course of one day. This was over time that we got to the eventual holding it against her throat. It wasn't exactly like a, oh, she's going to pull it out, and then I immediately had to do that. We did work up to it, which uh, is a little bit more reasonable. Yeah. So I, I would, like, hold the knife in my hand, and she would be across the room, and then I would have to get used to that. Mm-hmm. And then she would sit closer to me, and I would have to hold the knife. And then she would sit in front of me, and I would have to hold the knife. So it was a little bit more of a gradual process than I guess I explained at the beginning. So it eventually worked, and... We did a lot of Skype sessions, and I was still on medication, but at that point, we had gone through five or six medications and found one that was okay for me. It didn't lower my apathy level. I mean, it didn't, like, raise, make me too apathetic to feel guilty, but it also leveled my moods enough and kind of made me less depressed, so it it was somewhat effective. And life went on. I didn't end up stabbing anyone in the face at my high school. I mean, I still have harm thoughts, and I still have kind of psychotic, paranoid thoughts. Like, sometimes I'm agoraphobic and don't leave the house, and I think, if I go outside, someone is going to attack me, so I need to stay in here, Hmm. or, you know, that kind of thing. I still have my moments. But it's a lot more manageable through 
hundreds of hours of therapy, I've been able to recognize those thoughts for what they are and avoid being a serial killer. I'm 22 now, and I graduated four years ago, but I work full-time, and I had an episode at work where I was kind of convinced that the people at work could read my thoughts, again, you know, with the reading thoughts coming back up, and that they were going to read my thoughts, and they were going to get angry with me, and that they were going to try and kill me. And so I kind of, you know, worked myself into that little anxiety mode, and my thought was, well, I should kill them before they kill me. I recognized, wait a second, this isn't, this isn't, ir- this is one of those irrational thoughts. And, you know, I called my therapist's office and I got a cancellation for the next, I mean, I got an appointment for that night. You could squeeze me in. I didn't end up stabbing any of my coworkers. You know, so it is, it is possible to, to live as a crazy person and not, and not do things. But I shouldn't be able to have a gun. I need to be very careful with my medications. So yeah, when when I think back on this, my high school experience, that kind of thing, and how many times I came close to stabbing someone or to making a time bomb or I, I didn't have access to a gun, but uh, one of my big things was pencils. I'm next to a student and I can just reach over and stab their hand with a pencil. I, I think back on this and I think of the things that went right to stop me from doing that and the things that went wrong and did not help. And the things that went right were obviously my parents being very, very involved and doing a lot of research and just in general having some knowledge of psychiatric mental illnesses my dad is a lawyer and he's actually employed by the state every once in a while to go down to the state hospital and represent every every psychiatric patient in a state run facility has the right every like 2 weeks to ask for a lawyer and try to petition them being there basically in front of a judge and my dad goes and represents those people and so he's had a lot of experience with psychiatric patients. And so the things that went right were my parents being very involved, them having knowledge, them having the time to research this, them having the funds to send me to California to an expert. And the things that went wrong were obviously lack of supervision after I had changed medications, lack of the school taking any initiative after they knew that I was thinking about hurting other kids and, you know, just their total lack of support for any kind of mental illness. Again, I don't empathize with the Parkland kid, but I understand how, in my case, some things went wrong, some things went right, and those things that went right stopped me. And in his case, I think everything went wrong. He didn't have any kind of intervention to stop him from doing it. He still shouldn't have done it, but I get it. <laughs> 